The following is Russ Unger's talk, Things I've Learned and Am Still Learning from Leading UX Designers from the 2014 Information Architecture Summit. The 2014 IA Summit podcasts are brought to you by UIE's All You Can Learn. Stay tuned after the podcast for more information about All You Can Learn. Shh. That still works. Shh. Hello, I'm Tim Kynes. Okay, I'm Russ and I'm the secret talk today. The IA Summit did a great job of covering for a very simple mistake. It's very easy to make small things happen incorrectly when you are juggling lots of balls. So they've been super cool about today. Thank you for coming and staying. At least nobody's gotten up and left when you figured out I wasn't Tim Keynes, so I appreciate that. This talk is going to be more like the top two or three things I've learned from leading UX designers. My first real taste of leadership and management came around 1999. We called it the dot-com era back then. It was a really crazy time. I'd been bouncing from startups to startups. I was finding money and all kinds of lures to drag me from place to place. I worked for this really cool place called a life event marketing company. We're based upon different life events, like your wedding or having a baby. We would send you a DVD-ROM, and you would make a website from that DVD, push it online, and all of your friends and family could see what's going on. Kind of neat, kind of dorky, because we sent out DVDs to people. I loved, loved working there. My first month there, I just kind of acclimated. It was a whirlwind. I was there all day and all night. My boss came up to me and said, hey, Russ, we need to talk. My first reaction to that was, oh, shit, I'm getting fired. So I took that long walk down the hallway, out to the hallway with him. And I remember Rob was his name. And Rob said, Russ, you're doing really good. We really like you. We're giving you $10,000 more and 10,000 more shares of the company. And now you're leading the team. It was like a punch to my gut, because I didn't know what that meant. I'd never done that. I was just a designer. And I was more of a graphic designer back then. And as we were turning and walking back, he said, oh, one more thing. Dan, who was leading the team, he's now reporting to you. That scared the hell out of me. I was completely in over my head. I had no idea how to manage a team, how to lead, how to get anybody to do anything I wanted them to do. It was a lot like... Listen up. Maybe this. Uh, <clears throat> we, need to, uh, we need to play offense instead of all coming up to bat. Um, what? I apologize, but I don't know your games. I think what Lantern is saying is that it's time for some teamwork. So let's pull it together. Yeah, baby! Clap it up! What's the plan, then? Well, he blasts those beams out of his eyes, right? It's settled, then. We blind him. That's as good a plan as any. Yeah, we follow, and we stay out of sight. I'll turn on the fireworks to get his attention. Princess, you get in striking distance and stab that son of a bitch in the eyes. Like poor damned Oedipus. Yeah, what the hot Greek chick said. And the invasion of monsters raining from the sky? What about them? I might be able to send them back where they came from. Good enough for me. Here we go, team. We got this! We got this. It's about as firm of a battle cry as I could muster. And since then, I've asked a lot of people, and I've learned that most people go through it as a trial by fire. If they're lucky, 
they know somebody who is already a manager or a leader who can say, here's some ways to motivate people. But mostly it's, I don't want to be like that jerk boss I had. Or I think this is my preferred style. I want to be their hero. I want to be their dad. I'm going to protect them. Somebody says that another person bothered them. I would say, well, I'll handle Steve. And that really never, ever worked out as I would have liked. In fact, you know, what really happens is that as a first-time leader, particularly of people who weren't my team, they already had their own culture. They already had their own established relationships with each other. They knew how to work together. I knew I was going to make a lot of mistakes. That scared the hell out of me. These people were really smart, and I thought I had this right way to manage, but that didn't overlap really well with their thinking and my thinking. And in fact, even if I had an agreement on an approach to tackle something, they would often just go their own routes, tackle it, and I wouldn't know what was going on. As a leader and manager now, one of my big quotes is that I hate surprises. But simply put, I was a train wreck. I was a disaster. I was awful. I can't imagine anybody hired me again after the crap show that I put on there. I was cleaning up messes that I was making as this bold and brazen kid who thought he could do whatever the hell he wanted. He had a little bit of power and a little more money. and Yeah, it was heady stuff, and I was an idiot. And frankly, I really wasn't sure I was cut out for this. All these leadershipy dreams that I had, all this power and running companies and doing things, all kind of gone away. I've been lucky, though. Since then, I've had some coaches and mentors. If you walk through the hallways here, you're going to see a number of them. They may not even know it. So I pay attention to the people around me who are doing really smart things. They were always happy to help. They were going to give me an honest talk, sometimes a swift kick in the ass, a smackdown good advice, or sometimes good old-fashioned caring when they knew that I was just down and in a bad place. When I was extremely lucky, I had somebody near me who'd lead by example. What's the big deal? I had him! Dude, you had squat. We had a plan. Heads up, guys! You are a warrior, not a child. Act like it. Yes, ma'am. Wonder Woman's badass. A couple of weeks ago, I saw this quote in the New York Times, and it's about grown-ups. And I thought, what if we changed a couple of words here? It said, there are no managers. We suspect this when we're younger, but we can only confirm it when we're the ones writing reviews, SEOs, slide decks, and leadership retreats. Uh, everyone's winging it. Some just do it more confidently. You may have heard this as fake it till you make it or whatever it is, but this is something that a little bit of confidence not arrogance, not cockiness, goes a long way. It's hard to understand what that means, what that confidence is, without kind of having the experience of having your butt handed to you a few times. My first role, I was a manager, and it wasn't my team. I never, ever got anybody on the same direction or on my side. I always felt that it was my job to be the face or the voice of the team. And I think that was really incorrect. I also felt I owned whatever work out there that was mine, and I had to do it all by myself. I really wasn't much of a collaborator. Design reviews, they were this single view that were based upon what Russ thought, right? I was not a creative director or an experienced director. I was a creative dictator. Emphasis on the first half of that word. And in the dot-com era, it wasn't uncommon that I would work from 7 a.m. to 11 o'clock at night because it's the dot-com and we've got this thing and we want to get this money and there's these goals and... That's, that's a wrong message. And one of the things that I think took me the longest to learn through all of this was that first management role when it was never my team. 
I inherited a team. That was really hard. And in the last couple of years, I worked with somebody who kind of changed my perspective and helped me understand things. The first thing I'm going to talk about is a team charter. And when I say the words team charter, I think of how you would learn something like this from one of those trust fall people. Just let yourself go and somebody will catch you. But I let myself go and I got caught and I found a lot of really cool things. So I learned about a team charter. It's this unifying plan that gives the team you know, agreement and gives them these different rules and goals and objectives. I liken it to a persona for your team. You know, it's here's this group of people and here's what we think we are and our purpose and commitments. It takes a little bit of time, by a little bit of time, at least a couple of days tucked away privately and doing a lot of these types of things. Pulling together and finding out where your strengths and your weaknesses are and finding out what you are. And your real output can look a little bit like this, where you've got a document that tells people what you are. The first part of a team charter is the team purpose. We spent time going through this activity of what is it that we do as a team? What are we good at? What should we be known for? This put us in a position to have a definition for ourselves that everybody was in alignment with. We had to get this to a point that we all agreed. We had to say, this is who we're going to be. This is what we want people to understand us as. We also came up with a commitment for ourselves for each other. How do we want to work together? And what are our expectations of each other? In this case, we knew that we wanted to be really good collaborators. And we knew that we expected people to be on time. We expected people to say what they know and what they don't know. You know, it's our jobs to critique work and not people. And we made that commitment to each other. Everything we did is supposed to be at our top level. We also walked through our focus areas, talking about the types of work that we do. It's as simple as a bullet point list. We want to be known as researchers, designers, interaction design prototyping, usability testing. These were the things that we wanted other people to go, if I need those, we'll call them. We also talked about our areas of growth and improvement. And one of the things I learned from Jim Henson is that as a leader, he wasn't very good at kind of coddling or the warm and fuzzy stuff. He used to say to his team that if you're here, you're good enough. And so things like areas of growth and improvement always scare me a little bit and make me think that this means I'm not good enough. But what this means is, how do we take people who are good enough to be here and grow them to the next level? How do we know, you know, where do we find these areas that were deficient and improve it? And what we did is we would find something like experience mapping, write the rationale for why we want to learn this, what's the value add for the business, for ourselves, for the team, and then how will we know when we've reached it? So if we've done, I don't know, one to three experience map activities for our team in a year, then we know we've achieved this and we've got a certain level of learning or leveling up that we've done. We can write a new area of growth. We also talked about how we wanted to be perceived by other people. What do we want them to think of when they reach us? That we don't want to be the people who are seen as rounding corners. I don't want to turn your thing blue. That's not us. We need to talk to users. How do we get them to know this? And how will we know when we're there? And it's similar to the previous one. We wanted to be perceived as experts about our users. And so we would walk through how we could get there, what's our plan, and how we knew when we had reached it. And that helped us really define who our team was, and we all agreed to this. Now, to be fair, I didn't facilitate this activity. I paid a professional to come in and lead us through this. Because if I sat up there and said all of this stuff, it quickly becomes Russ Unger's thought of this team instead of an external facilitator who really wasn't a part of us and there was no sort of misguided leading. And finally, something we're still kind of working on, but signatures. 
we have to all agree to this. We have to say that we're going to commit this to each other, and we're going to operate like this. And we saw a lot of benefits. We went from a small team that's probably almost tripled in size in the last couple of years. The core of that team, before the big growth, understands this. We all kind of understand how to operate. So we're starting to share this with each other and with the new folks who come on board and make sure that they can understand how we operate as a team. Now, one of the other things that I learned a lot about is critique. And if you've been to this conference enough, you know plenty about Aaron and Adam, really solid guys who can tell you just about anything in the world about critique. And we spent time thinking about critique. We did some exercises. We had Adam and Aaron talk to us on the phone about this. And one of the things that we struggled with, in fact, one of the things I had said was, everybody talk to at least one or two other people about your design work and make sure that they're not on your team. And we'll call that doing critique. It's a really easy thing to write down on a goal or an objective. Yeah, we're doing critique. It's also a big, fat lie. Nobody has time to do that. So I didn't know how to do this. And in some cases, I was the design review person or the critique person. And when your team grows pretty big, it's hard to do that and be the be-all, end-all and have your own work to do. So I kind of started thinking about something that Kim said at Interaction Design in 2009, which was each one teach one. But we couldn't see that as a good single pairing. So it's each one teach many in our organization. And so I invented this thing called Critique Buddies. It's an awful, awful name. I absolutely realize that. But I checked, and I absolutely did make up this bat crap stupid name. <laughs> I've got other names, like Axure Squad. <laughs> no, these things happen. They're memorable, right? So we know what they are. Critique Buddies, for a staff that where we're at, where I think you probably need about six or so people to pull this off. But <laughs> I've been insanely busy, and I wasn't able to be this and help people, and that's really sad. So I created this framework that essentially was each one teach two or three people. I created these things called critique leads. If two people who I think are doing fantastic in their design roles, and for the first quarter of a year, they're critique leads. And those people assign themselves three to four buddies. So working with my critique leads, it's like picking dodgeball teams. Kind of said these people to this team. And we've got a very, very simple plan. We've got weekly 30-minute meetings, so a critique lead and a critique buddy have to meet once a week, like a one-on-one -on -one meeting with a manager or something. They can only skip one week in a row, meaning you can't go two weeks without having a meeting. And they can cheat a little bit. If you're the lead, you can have somebody critique your work. But these 30-minute meetings just to review current work, it's also then 30-minute meetings, the leads with me. So right now, every Friday at 8.30 in the morning, I have a talk with my critique leads about the critique reviews they've done for the week. It means that I don't have to review everything. It means nobody has to rely upon me. And frankly, the design work that I've seen is better because I'm not a bottleneck. And frankly, I'm not the best designer on the team. The buddy meetings are really kind of simple. For the first two to three weeks, the buddies get to know each other. Usually it's on the phone, or if we can do video chat, we'll do that. They review what they're working on, and it's driven by the critique lead. It's kind of getting to know each other, understanding how to work together. But then after about three weeks or so, we shift to agendas, slightly more structured, and it's led by the critique buddy. So it's no longer the lead is saying, this is how we're going to do it. It's this buddy is saying, these are the things I want to talk about, and this is how we're going to talk about these things. And finally, we have these leader meetings, the once a week that I talked about. We report on progress of the team. We've got this critique manual 
to guide for the team. So the next time we choose a new leader, they understand what they're getting into. And buddies kind of have a set of rules that they can follow into. This is all based upon work that Adam and Aaron produced, which is fantastic. They let us borrow this stuff frequently. And then they modify the program. We've probably made shifts to this program two to three times, probably per month as we've been going through it. And we select our next critique leads. We find out who's doing really well in critique and can be really good at providing that actionable feedback. And that's it. It is that simple of a thing that has provided me with an insane amount of benefits. For that little tiny bit of thing, I have more time. I've seen who the leaders are in my organization. We see the growth needs that we have. We see where, again, it's not like anybody's in trouble, but we see that somebody might need more experience on wireframing or training with Axure. We can find that. The critique that's in our organization now is so much stronger, so much better. Every time I talk about it, I just grin because I just look at everybody leveling up. I've got team members that are in Texas, California, Michigan, Minneapolis. Wow, I went from a state to a city, sorry, and Connecticut. And those team members don't always get to speak to each other. And this is giving them a half an hour a week where suddenly they know their friends or their coworkers and they start to become friends with them. That's pretty cool because it starts to feel less like just different islands out there that don't talk to each other. Everybody is getting better at facilitation and presentation skills. And the design across the team has also leveled up. I think it's fantastic for something that is easy to describe in a handful of slides. It's huge. And finally, time. I've been lousy about time over the years. Hell, I know I speak fast, but you know, this is a great quote that we found, which is, you know, if you don't spend time doing planning, when you jump right in, you might have to do something twice. Plus, we have a really cool job. We get to talk to people. We get to design things to make lives easier, better. And if we're not doing anything other than chasing it really fast, how can we do that? How can we have fun? I'm a big believer in work hard. I work hard. I think I probably work too much. But the play hard thing, I think, is crap. I think that when you work hard, you do so so people can go home and spend time with their families. And so my thing that I've learned here is if you're going to plan a work activity, plan it during work time. The least you can do is give that up to people who give you so much. It shouldn't be a quote unquote reward to spend six hours after work having a beer. Sorry, but people have families and lives. And while your coworkers are cool people, they aren't necessarily always your friends or at least the people that you want to hang out with all the time. Sometimes you just want to be with your family. Great quote here. Everyone plays harder. I don't want to play harder. I want to work smarter with smart people who know how to work so I can go home and spend time there. One other thing, heroes, those people who work like the idiot that I was from 7 in the morning to 11 at night, you're only as good as your last heroic effort. And every time you pull a miracle out, somebody believes that that's just the way it works. If you get a three-week task done in three days, guarantee you somebody's going to call you and ask you for another one and another one. Not only is that a bad pattern to get into, but when you've got one hero, you've got a whole other team of people who just can look bad by doing their jobs the right way. And that's not good for morale. So in general, I kind of also think that with time, I need to lighten up. What I mean by that is I don't always agree with things that Jason Fried says, but he talks about how he was at a presentation with Richard Saul Werman and he had given a talk, Richard gave a talk, and Richard asked him how to go. And Jason kind of stood up and postured and kind of got into an attack mode. And Richard Saul Werman's quote to him was, hey man, give it five minutes. And what Jason learned from that is something I've thought about a lot. 
Take a breath. Wait five minutes before you respond. Wait 24 hours and see if it's a panic tomorrow. You don't have to always get right up there and do things. Bonus, smile when you write an email. Makes a big bit of difference when you're pissed off. And the other one is, I like fives, but five years. Will any of this matter five years from now? If you're losing your mind in whatever situation you're in, think about that. That's helped me a lot, helped me de-stress quite a bit. So the big so what, why have I gone over a couple of minutes into Tim's presentation? All of these things, for the most part, non-technical skills. This is bigger than I am, and it's bigger than you are. Get out of your own way. Focus on what's important here. Everyone else. It's a big statement from the Batman. It's not about you. You know, it's more than just anything that I think it is. It's always about the people around me. When I see somebody struggling, I look at myself first and hardest and ask, how did I fail them to not allow them to succeed? And then the bonus number two here is keep on winging it confidently. A little bit of confidence will go a long way. That's my time. If there's any questions, I'll be out in the hallway. Thank you very much. The 2014 IA Summit podcasts are brought to you by UIE's All You Can Learn. UIE's All You Can Learn will give you the skills and techniques you need for a competitive design advantage with 24-7 access to UX experts and topics. For more information, visit AYCL.UIE.com. That's AYCL.UIE.com. As always, thank you for listening.